Hello, everyone, and welcome to the America in Focus podcast powered by the Center Square. America in Focus is a production of America's Talking Network. I'm Dan McCaleb, executive editor of the Center Square Newswire Service. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. Joining me today is not Casey Harper, but Brett Rowland, investigative reporter at the Center Square. Brett, how are you? I'm great, Dan. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for thanks for joining me. Our good colleague and friend, uh, Casey, he and his wife. Welcome to Baby Boy this week. Exciting news, huh? Yes, uh, I think he's this is their first. So their very first. exciting for them. Yeah, good for them. So he's uh, taking some time off to spend um, with his wife and son. Uh, wish them the best. Everybody's healthy, uh, as I understand it. So good news there. Brett, we're recording this on Thursday, January 26th. Before we get into the news this week, I got a question for you. All right. Do you have any classified documents stored at your home or personal office? I don't think so. But boy, if I was a, a former president, I'd sure be che- or vice president, I'd definitely be checking my home about now. Um, you got to think that Clinton has a couple, or, or uh, I mean, Obama, he just didn't seem Bush. as very cautious to me. Yeah, what this as, is this is craziness. We. First, you had the raid on Trump's Mar-a-Lago home, and uh, and then lo and behold, President Biden himself, from his days as vice president under uh, President Obama, had classified documents at his home, at his garage, and his, uh, his one of his personal offices. And now this week, uh, former Vice President Mike Pence, uh, we learned, had classified documents. What's going on? That's right. So they found 12 classified documents last week at uh, Pence's home in Carmel, Indiana. So um, it, it, th- there's very little information about like what was in these documents or how sensitive the information was. But um, so this certainly looks like maybe there's a larger, uh, larger issue with um, controlling classified documents uh, across levels of government. Uh, the White House is not commenting on uh, any of the documents. Uh, so far, so we'll see how long they can keep that up. But um, it's it's certainly been something to watch, yeah. and it, it's hard to tell about how how bad of a problem this is at this point. And it's 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 a little bit. It's not comical. It's classified. Some 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 instances, you know, top secret documents. So I don't want to say it's comical, but just how the the finger pointing that goes on. You know, everyone was all about, um, or I shouldn't say everyone, it's very partisan, uh, the finger pointing. You know, Democrats were all about investigating and prosecuting uh, Donald Trump. And then, um, you know, Biden, uh, Biden's team found the documents in two separate locations, including his garage. Was it next to his Corvette? Is that what, what it was? Yeah, that's what the reports were. So um, and so, the, and then, the, of course, the right was pointing fingers at Biden and calling for investigations. And now, you know, Pence had some documents. Says, oh, maybe it's maybe maybe you should be, be investigated if you don't have classified documents stored at your personal home or office. To be the big unanswered question here is what was actually in these documents? Were these like mistaken? They just took home, you know, if you're clearing out four or eight years worth of paperwork from your office you're bound to grab a few that were supposed to stay at the office. But like, how important were these documents? Were they, you know, covert agents uh, stationed in Russia or nuclear secrets, or were they memos that just hadn't been declassified or. Right. Well, we'll see, we'll see what the investigations turn up and, and what's shared 
um, with the public. The only thing I know for sure right now probably is that Barack Obama and George W. Bush uh, are scouring their homes and the, their offices to see, <laughs> to make sure they don't have any uh, classified. And Clinton, Clinton and oh, Clinton. Um, uh, Carter too. President I mean, Carter's they, still, yes. Yeah, they've all got to be looking. I mean, you oh, and the vice presidents too. I mean, you don't you don't want any of that found in your house really at this point. Who who wants more involvement with uh, the FBI or the Justice Department? I sure don't. That's for sure. I, I I did a quick scour and I don't think I have any classified documents hanging around either. Why don't we move on to some other news? Um, Brett, more news on the border. Um, uh, according to U.S. Border Patrol their own documents or their own data, um, uh, 38 known terrorists uh, were apprehended illegally trying to enter the uh, country in the first three months of uh, fiscal 23. Uh, The federal fiscal year starts October 1st. So we're um, uh, we've got three months of data on that. And that's, that's, that's a, a significant increase from years past. And that's a little concerning. Right. So um, there were 98 total arrested um, or apprehended uh, in fiscal year 2022. And there was and and put that further in context, there were 15 in all of fiscal 2021. So already in the first three months of 2023, more have been apprehended than in 2021 the entire year. So there's certainly some interesting numbers. Now, exactly what's behind these, though, was less clear to me. So, Dan, do you think that these increased numbers are just uh, the product of lax enforcement? Yes, in terms of the Biden administration's policies when it comes to the border. I think the Border Patrol agents themselves are doing all they can um, uh, to, to do their jobs. But they're really they, they've been handcuffed by this administration. Been more than three million um, border crossings since President Biden took office. Um, they're releasing more people into the United States. There's more what, what, what they call gotaways. Gotaways are how the federal government um calls people who uh, illegally cross the border between ports, points of entry, and then evade law enforcement. There's plenty more of those. And the scary thing is we don't know who those people are. So this 38 figure, yes, Border Patrol agents, and good for them, they arrested or apprehended 38 known terrorists. That's 38 terrorists who aren't in the country, not, not know where we don't know where they are. But how many more have gotten into the country um, uh, as a gotaway? where they avoided uh, capture. That's the scary thing. That certainly is. I mean, that's the, that's the kind of thing that would keep you up at night. So let's move on, Brett. You wrote a story uh, this week about a federal program that uh, a report found uh, is spent more than a billion dollars on potential ineligible members. Tell us about this. So this is the um, Federal Employees Health Benefits Program, which is this huge government system that um, ins- provides health benefits to about 8 million federal employees and their families. And so they found that um, almost a, a billion dollars per year could be, be is probably being spent on ineligible members. They found several cases that were um, very questionable. One of them was a federal employee who fraud- fraudulently covered two people that he said were his wife and stepchild. Oh, they my- were both ineligible. They were both on this health insurance program for 12 years, and the government paid out more than $100,000 in claims on behalf of those two ineligible people. So it's a big system, but it also sounds like there's a lot of waste there. Um, so it's a $59 billion dollar program. Not just waste, but right. fraud. Right. There's definitely fraud. They definitely found cases of fraud. But, I mean, it's a huge system. So $59 billion in um, 
in in uh, in benefits. Fifty, yeah, fifty nine billion dollars in benefits uh, over, or that's the cost of the program for twenty twenty one. But um, so a billion dollars being spent the wrong way is is never a good sign. Um, a billion but, dollars a year potentially. A billion dollars per year. So we don't know how many years this has been going on, but they they did point to that one case where there's you know ineligible people on the benefit rolls for more than uh, for more than a decade. So it, it being the federal government, as efficient as they are, I'm sure they've got some quick fixes in mind. No, I think this is going to take longer than that. Um, there's uh, uh, the uh, Office of General Accountability has some has some recommend, has made recommendations and and ways to try to clean this up. And but the Office of Personnel Management uh, needs to basically come in and take steps to remove those who are who had, are ineligible and also take fraud more seriously. Take fraud more seriously. When the federal debt is more than thirty one trillion dollars, what's a billion dollars here and there? Federal debt is, I want to make sure I said that clearly. Federal debt is more than $31 trillion. What's a billion dollars when, when you're talking about that kind of money? That's a good point. And that it's a great segue to our next story, which claims there could be as much as $60 billion in unemployment insurance fraud during the pandemic. Now, um, that number comes with two big caveats. One is that at least $45 billion of that money is flagged as potentially fraudulent. Um, and only 4.3 billion of that has been proven. Um, and that of the total amount given out in unemployment, there's about $878 billion given out in unemployment benefits through the pandemic. These were those enhanced, enhanced federal, uh, uh, benefits that because of COVID-19, you know, businesses were, were forced to shut down businesses that were deemed non-critical, um, were forced to shut down. There were massive layoffs. I remember the early months of the pandemic, you know, every Thursday when um, uh, when the federal government released the unemployment data, we were scrambling in all of our states to figure out how bad it was, the, the unemployment numbers in our states. So this was that money was paid out during the first year or so of the pandemic. Yeah, about the first year and a half was, was when most of this occurred. Um, and they're looking at $60 billion. Now, th- this has just been flagged, so it's not uh, – that money hasn't been totally written off, and some of it, I guess, could still be reclaimed through clawback efforts. But it's an eye-popping number that really makes you wonder uh, whether there were enough safeguards put in place for giving out this money. I, I realize the intention was to get it out quickly, but um, you know, there's costs that come with speed, I guess. Yeah, well, that's I, I remember when you know we were covering it at the center square when all this um, was going on, and, and yeah, the, the, I mean. Something like this, where you usually the states collect un, uh, in, uh, unemployment benefit or uh, insure, tax businesses and and, and workers um, to build up their unemployment uh, benefits programs. Um, the federal government stepped in on this one and added to those state programs, and really it was done in a matter of weeks, maybe even days. So they obviously weren't prepared um, for the amount of fraud that was that that did occur. And the fraud was just massive. I know that even for internally, we saw it. I think that um, someone filed uh, benefit claims on my behalf while I was still employed. I think that a number of other employees got yeah, targeted me, too. Me too. Me too. Yeah. So, Chris, I mean, Cooper, it was, it was of the center square. He he also had a claim filed on his behalf. Yeah, I mean, it was it was just fast and furious. People were filing, at, just jumping at that at the chance to get that federal money. And it looks like a lot of it went uh, places where it shouldn't have. Right. I've, there was a co- story out of California 
um, uh, going on a year and a half or so ago now, where they found that prison inmates were applying and receiving unemployment uh, benefits. Yes. I mean, there seems to be no limits. I mean, there was a case out of Chicago just the other day where a woman, this was under the uh, PPP program, a woman had uh, used it to buy like Gucci dog collars and a a yacht. Um, So, I mean, uh, there's just a a lot of this money didn't go, that was given out by the federal government during the pandemic, didn't go where it should have. Well, it's no wonder the United States is more than $31 trillion in debt when you've got all this this fraud going on and, and you know, uh, I don't know, it's, it's mind, mind boggling, I guess. It, it certainly is. I mean, it's just so much money. It's hard to even put it in perspective sometimes. <clears throat> you wrote this week, Brett, about um, uh, a, a plan floated by some Republicans um, to essentially reform the federal tax system. Yeah. So this is this to me was reforms, not probably not the best, the greatest word there, but you significantly change the federal tax system. Yeah, this would like explode the existing system and create a whole new one. So this this is a huge change. And the government generally doesn't like large change to come out at once. So this is really unlikely to advance. But it it is an interesting um, thing. And it it will probably get more discussion, especially as the, the 2017 tax cuts and job acts. About 23 provisions of that are set to expire at the end of 2025. So there's going to be taxes. There's going to be more discussion about how the U.S. government taxes, who pays those taxes, and how much they pay, and what the rate should be. Um, but this this uh, is specifically focused on the Fair Tax Act, which comes from Earl Carter out of Georgia. Um, it's some form of this national consumption tax has been around for about a decade, but um, this would essentially put a about 30% sales tax on everything you buy. But it would do away with a lot of things that, that um, we don't like, you know, paying income taxes to the federal government. Um, to get so, rid of the IRS if you do that, right? Yeah, so, right. And that's actually part of the bill. So that um, it calls for essentially uh, ceasing IRS funding by... Um, 2027. So the IRS would be gone. Uh, the IRS, mind you, is a uh, agency that has about 78,000 employees now. They're looking to hire another 87,000. Um, it has uh, a f- um, $13.7 billion operations budget, and it uh, reviews $260 million uh, federal tax returns each year and brings in $4.1 trillion in taxes. So getting rid of this agency is, would be no small task. Uh, and they'd have to build up infrastructure at the state level to collect a national sales tax. So there's some really huge challenges for this. But uh, I think that a, a lot of people uh, would like the simplicity of it. It would essentially do, do away with the tax preparation industry for at least for individuals uh, with simple filing. I think businesses would still probably need tax uh, preparers and accountants. But I mean, it's just, it's just such a huge change that I think that it's unlikely to pass in its current form. Uh, maybe some of these changes can be made incrementally, but there's no way something this big is going to pass. Um, so, what'd you see in here, Dan? Anything you saw in here that you liked? Well, I was, I was going to get rid of the IRS. Is, is, you know, you know, we, it's getting close to tax season here. We're going to be preparing our own personal taxes and not having to file income taxes. Yes. But let me, that's what I was going to ask you. What are the arguments? What are the opponents of this consumption tax, national consumption tax say? Why, why not? 
Well, there's some issues. And so um, if you're taxing just based on consumption, you could make the argument that people that have more money um, and don't need to spend all of their income for housing um, and, and, and health insurance and, and, and have more money to save would be paying less taxes, perhaps. Um, but, what, but I guess just how you structure it, um, I think is a good topic for discussion that, that isn't really discussed all that option, all that often in Washington. Um, so it's interesting to see different ideas. Um, but I just don't think that this, w- this is, this is gonna, gonna go anywhere. And I had a great yeah. conversation with Garrett Watson over at the, uh, tax foundation in Washington, DC. And he said that he would be surprised if this, uh, really went anywhere. Uh, even if it got a positive committee vote, that would be big news for this plan, which has been around since 1999. Did he have an opinion on it one way or the other? No, the tax partisan is, or the, I'm sorry, the, the tax foundation is, is nonpartisan and, and they don't tend to like uh, advocate for a certain thing. He, he was very, uh, he's, he's definitely a wonk. He gets all the ins and outs of, of uh, whether a tax is progressive or regressive, and he can talk about the benefits, and he and he he, uh, he he's very informed. So he doesn't have an opinion on it, but he thinks that it, it would uh, it's it's unlikely to go far because of just the um, how the scope of the bill. Right. Well, and as partisan uh, uh, and gridlocked as Congress is, anyway, you can't get little things um, passed nowadays, let alone something as ginormous as this would be. Um, so there's. Yeah, there's no way this thing goes anywhere. I agree with you though. It's not. Let's have a conversation about it. Why not? What are the What are the pros and the cons? It's it's I, so that's why I think it's so interesting, and, and that's why I wanted to write more about it. Is you know there are plans out there. This is uh, not a plan that's not going to catch on with the mainstream. But it is interesting to see different ideas and how uh, different people might fare, and how businesses too might benefit from. Uh, from this. So like uh, under this plan, there would be, um, so people that were fell below the poverty line would get essentially a monthly rebate on their sales tax and businesses would like, so if you bought chairs for your, for your restaurant, um, you wouldn't pay tax on those chairs, but you, um, would have to collect tax on the goods you sell for final like a like once you we finally distribute it, then you'd have to sell it. So, there, some people say say this would be very good for business growth and it'd be very pro growth pro growth measure. Um, but I, it's such a big change that it's hard to even get your hands around it, or it's hard for me to get my head around like what it would actually mean or what it would do for businesses, for people, things like that. Sounds like it would be ripe for fraud too. But hey, there's fraud in every other government tax and spend measure, so why not? That's true. That's true. And this, the uh, another interesting part about this would be that that uh, businesses and then states would collect money and then remit it to the U.S. Treasury. So, I mean, there'd be it just would be so many different changes uh, that I think it'd be hard to do in any sort of short amount of time. This All government right. just can't move quickly. Brett, we got time to talk briefly about one more story, and I'm going to start this off with a question as well. Do you know how many federal government programs there are in existence today? No. And I'll tell you what, the government also doesn't know, but they want to find out. So back in 2011, uh, there was an an overhaul passed to to try to get the government uh, to be a little bit more efficient and um, uh, have a better inventory of what programs the the government was offering, what federal programs. So this week, the uh, Government Accountability Office came out with a new report that basically said, 
that law, which passed in 2011, hasn't been fully implemented and this still could take a few more years to get it going. Uh, what the goal was to have all federal programs, along with financial information about that program, listed so that you could sort of compare and see if there was going to be duplication or overlap or um, things that just didn't need to be done. So that hasn't happened yet. Um, and part of it, well, a big reason is a lack of a common definition as to what a government program is. Really? So, <laughs> yes. So for small or limited government uh, advocates, this probably drives them just crazy. But yes, the government doesn't know many other pro- programs it has. Um, That's not a surprising thing. It's bad, <laughs> but it's not surprising. Yes. So the GAO has made a bunch of recommendations to the Office of Management and Budget to try to get this going and have this have this done by 2025. They understand, they say, given the size and scope of the federal government, developing a complete inventory of federal programs is a complex undertaking. And surely it is. But at the same time, I think taxpayers deserve to know how their money is being spent um, and whether there's duplicate or ineffective or outdated programs out there that, that, that need to be cut. Brett, if my faith uh, in the federal government wasn't um, already completely torn to shreds before this podcast, I think it's probably there now. But that is all the time we have this this week. This has been the American Focus Podcast. Congratulations if you're listening out there, Casey. Brett, go better go back and double check uh, your, your home there. See if you got any classified documents. Maybe a suggestion for all of our listeners. For Brett Roland, I'm Dan McCaleb. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.